So we are today rounding the final corner of our series through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And I've really enjoyed going through these books. I'd never preached through them before, so it was fun to look deeper into them. And this is a series that began in May after our core value series, while we were still absent from one another. So I remember, I remember very clearly each of these sermons I preached just in front, of the, in front of the camera. It's so encouraging to end this series face-to-face with many of you, and of course with the camera as well. Hi, everybody. Um, but just so thankful for the way God's moving and working. We're able to sing uh, with masks on. We're able to, to, to gather together with precautions. I'm just so thankful for that. And uh, we're, we're going to be finishing up the series probably next week, summarizing what we've learned in First and Second Thessalonians before our annual meeting. But for, for our lesson today from First Thessalonians, we're going to be focusing on two of the core values our church holds. And the first is uh, our second core value of prayer. And that's prayer is the primary work of the people of God. We say here at New Life, prayer is the primary work of the people of God. And we say we believe that nothing of lasting value can be done unless it is bathed in prayer beforehand. This is something we really try to stick to. And we try to show this in a number of ways, um, praying before and after meetings, during meetings, and praying on Wednesdays with the prayer team, and praying really with anyone that we come into contact with, uh, because we believe that nothing of lasting value can really take hold in in hearts until God does his work. So we're going to be looking at that value today in today's sermon. And the second value that we're going to look at in this sermon today uh, that Scripture touches on is this idea of stewardship. You'll see the Scripture talking about this. And the, the idea of stewardship is everything we have belongs to God, and we are his stewards. And today Paul is going to do a little bit of a, a, a different angle of this stewardship principle that we're going to learn a little bit about. Let's begin where Paul begins. We're going to go into First Thessalon- Second Thessalonians 3. We're going to go through the, chap- uh, the full chapter. If you want to turn your Bibles there or follow along on the screen. Keeping in mind, prayer is the primary work of the people of God. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And I truly love that little phrase, Christ's perseverance. The perseverance of Christ. There's something about the way he's telling these people to persevere. He's saying, you are in Christ, so you can kind of jump on the coattails of Christ's perseverance. And of course, Christ persevered to his death and to his resurrection. So a powerful passage. But we often, we often neglect to pray in the ways that Paul is telling us to pray for, like, for the everyday things that we uh, encounter that Paul seems to kind of take for granted that, that he knew needed prayer. And oftentimes we save our prayer times for moments of personal crisis, for moments of large decisions. You know, we might not pray about uh, something that's a little smaller, but we might pray about buying a car or, or what college to go to or who to marry or who to date or, or those kinds of big, big questions, but neglect some of the smaller ones. But what Paul requests prayer for here tells us about what Paul thought merited and benefited from prayers to God. And the first thing Paul requests prayer for is found in verse 1, where it says, Brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. 
And this verse kind of reminds me of another passage we preached on from 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul thanks God that the Thessalonians received the word of the apostles as if it was the word of God, which is what it was. And so here, remembering the faith of the Thessalonians, that they had received the word of God as if it, from Paul and Silas and Timothy, as if it was the very word of God, remembering their faith, Paul asks this church to pray that other people who Paul and Silas and Timothy and the other apostles are preaching to would do the same thing, that those people would also receive the word of God that's being shared with them as God's actual words to them. And Paul and his companions had good reason to be to be asking for this prayer from these people. We saw in Acts 17, the passage that started our series off, when Paul and his companions were kicked out of Thessalonica by, uh, by basically a riot was started intentionally to kick them out so they couldn't preach the gospel there anymore. And even though they preached uh, the true gospel, the response was hostility from people that did not have faith. So Paul and his companions, they recognized that We need prayer. We need prayer because we've been kicked out for preaching the gospel before. And the people to pray for us are the people that receive the word of God and they know what it means to hear and receive the word of God. So pray. Pray with the authority that God's given you for us, the apostles, um, that, that the preaching would be effective for other people, just like you, and that the apostles would once again escape wicked people who have no faith and are opposed to the gospel message. And I think that in in inviting this young church in Thessalonica who had exercised just a little bit of faith in receiving the word of God, Paul is showing his belief that prayer is the primary work of the church and that prayer makes an actual difference in the outcomes of the gospel ministry, especially perhaps from people who are praying in faith, which the Thessalonians would have been able to do given their track, track record of obedience to God's word before. In some ways, the Thessalonians are in a unique position to pray with authority that maybe other people who had not received the gospel as the word of God might have lacked. And so uh, Paul says, pray for the message to go through clearly, for people to receive it like you received it, and pray that we might not be persecuted and that the people, that the, the apostles, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy would be seen as men sent from God and not run out of town. So for Paul... He sees that there are actual barriers in the way of this gospel message going forward. I I guarantee you, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, any one of those guys could preach the gospel like flawlessly every time. They were so on fire. They knew Jesus. They were in touch with with the Bible. They had seen the power of the gospel message. These guys could preach. And still, they were run out of town by people that were opposed to that message and that did not have faith. It doesn't matter how good the preaching is. It doesn't matter how persuasive the preaching is. It doesn't matter how perhaps heartfelt the preaching is. Without prayer, the gospel is not going to make it. So this is a really powerful thing to have the best preacher probably ever asking this young church for their prayers. And not only is he asking them for, and not only is he asking them to pray, and that's kind of a really, really cool thing. But if you think about it, he is elevating this church, this brand new church, a few months old, and saying, you guys, you new believers, are on the same spiritual footing as the apostles. You can pray and see things happen. That's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing. Not just a few special people have power to pray or authority to pray, but just people who simply obeyed God and walked out in faith. 
They have the same authority to pray as the apostles do, and even their prayers make a difference in the lives of the apostles. I'm sure this blew the minds of the people in the little church. I'm sure that they took it to heart. Um, so he says, pray. Pray that the message goes through, and pray uh, that we are not kicked out of town again, and we believe your prayers, even though you're young, even though you don't, maybe don't know as much as we do or have as much experience. Or your prayers are on equal footing, because guess whose name we pray in? Jesus' name. So when God hears a prayer from you, you imperfect person like myself, we pray in Jesus' name because we're basically stamping it with a stamp that guarantees the letter gets opened, and whatever from our prayer doesn't really match God's will gets stripped away through the filter of Christ, and God just, he hears and responds not based on who we are, but based on who Christ is. It's a really cool thing. I love that. I think that also, you know, it's a special thing, and maybe I could be reading into the scripture a little bit, but I'm not, I don't really think so. I think it's a special thing for the Thessalonians to pray that other people would receive the gospel as the word of God because they had been commended for doing just that. And I think there, there's a principle there that we should leverage whatever way that we have expressed faith and obedience to God in the past to pray for other people. So what do I mean by that? I mean, if you have been healed from a physical problem by God, you should pray for other people to be healed because you have a certain amount of authority and faith having been through that experience, and maybe you can pray in a way that is very effective. If you have sought God for, for, to, to hear his voice for you and you've heard from him, you know, pray for other people to hear God's voice and hear from him. Um, if you have received, a, 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 had a genuine need in your life that got filled by God or by God's people, you've experienced the provision of God, pray for the provision of other people. I think in, every, in whatever way we've obeyed or responded well, like that church in Thessalonica that, that responded and received the word as from the Lord, from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, in whatever way we have done that, we've grown in faith and we can then pray with great authority and perhaps in, with great effectiveness. But, I lo- but in all these types of prayers that we offer up, number one, they're in Jesus' name. So it's not based on our merit, but based on Jesus' merit on the cross that they get heard by God. And number two, they are our primary work. Everything we do must be bathed in prayer because even the best preaching, the best church, whatever it might be, is not going to be effective without the power of God exercised through prayer offered in faith. Another thing is that, uh, as I said last week, policies know, a lot of people talk about prayer and they say, if God knows everything that's going to happen, I, I understand this, you've heard this line of, line of argument, if God knows all that's going to happen, you know, why should we pray? It doesn't make any sense. You know, that's kind of demotivating. This is a great mystery, guys. But the Bible does teach that prayer makes a difference, and it teaches that God knows everything at the same time, as far as I can tell. And Paul and Jesus and other, other um, figures from the Bible don't seem to see a contradiction between our part and God's part. They don't do what we do and, like, chop everything up and say, this is God's work, this is my work. It's all kind of lumped together. You pray— and God moves, and God responds somehow in, 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 a, in a great mystery. I can't tell you. But I would not use the fact that we don't understand prayer to say, oh, God knows everything. He's going to do what he wants anyway, because that's not what the Bible teaches really either. So I think it's cool to think that we can pray and make a difference in the world. I think it's really exciting to think that we can pray and make a difference in the world. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things. I remember when Jackie was pregnant— with uh, Elias, and we went to, we, we had friends who were 
preaching a marriage retreat, and we went to this retreat, and Jackie had these horrendous hives all over her body, like a pregnancy rash. It was very uncomfortable, very itchy, and very painful. Maybe some of you women have experienced that, but it was kind of like having poison ivy all over your body for you guys um, who have not experienced the joys of pregnancy. Um, and it was, it was so bad that she couldn't really sleep. She was up. She was itching. And we, we received prayer from some people at this retreat, and it just went away that day, that moment, gone. And she had no more rash. How cool is that, that just a group of people praying in Jesus' name prayed for healing? And now every time, I mean, we prayed for healing yesterday, uh, and, and um, we think back to the same stories of when God did it in the past. Like, he can do it, and he can do it again. One of our worship songs says, you know, you can do it again. You know, we, we build on the faith that we have, and we pray. And why does God, you know, answer one prayer seemingly the way we ask it, not another? That's also a mystery. But we need to pray. We need to engage with God and pray. Prayer is our primary work. And if you want to join us in prayer, you know, we do meet to pray um, weekly uh, over Zoom. And, and uh, if you're interested in that, it might be a weird time. But we, we can figure out other times to pray too. But the whole point is of, of that whole prayer time that Linda Thomas uh, started that along with myself is we believe that we want to put into practice our belief that spiritual chains cannot be broken through plowing forward. Even if, you're, even if you have all the right stuff, seemingly, you're not going to break spiritual chains without prayer. And everything we do has to be bathed in prayer, and that without prayer, we can't do anything. So that's kind of why we do it, right, Linda? And there's an unseen realm and things going on we can't understand. We have to pray. So Paul says, pray for us. Your prayers will make a difference. Even you three-month-old Christians, your prayers are making a difference for the apostles that shared the gospel with you because you obedient, you obeyed the word, you received the word. Pray that others will receive it as well and pray that people will be more um, tolerant of our presence than those other people in Thessalonica who kicked us out. Pray for us. The second core value I think today's scripture touches on, and I like to point these out whenever I see them in the scripture, is this value we call stewardship, uh, which, which Paul kind of puts an interesting spin on. The value of stewardship that we derive from Scripture says, everything we have belongs to God. We are his stewards. We are the caretakers of what God's given us. But everything we have belongs to God. We're going to read from verse 6 to the end of the passage. And I want you to notice this first sentence. that This is strong language. So if we want to gloss over this and not talk about it, it's probably not possible, <laughs> given the fact it's in the Bible, number one. But number two... Listen to this language. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. It's a strong statement. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do, have, do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Is he talking about spiritual food? No. He's not. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. He must have been proud of that line. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. 
And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. I love that little sentence in the end. You know, it kind of gives you the scope of what this shunning looks like. Um, you warn them as a fellow believer, not as someone who is doomed. The whole point is restoration, right? But I think in some ways this is an angle on stewardship, uh, on, on, the, on the things we have and how we hold our possessions. This final section of, of the letter seems like a really extreme situation to us. And it's, hard, it's honestly hard to relate to in our day, exactly. But this section talks about what we would call church discipline or like punishment among the body of Christ, redemptive discipline in the body of Christ. And it says that if certain behaviors are present in the body, then in order to correct those who are misbehaving, they should be made to feel shame through being cast out of fellowship on some level. That seems like a very extreme position to take. But it's worded very strongly. You see in verse 6 where it says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. And later on it says that such people who will not work, who are busybodies, they should not be fed until they do their fair share of the labor. And of course, Paul's famous quote, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, which I'd love to see on the Hobby Lobby sign. You know those, those like Christian spiritual signs they sell on Hobby Lobby? That would be a great one for your kitchen or your dining area, for your, for your kids or for yourself. The one who does not work shall not eat. And finally, at the closing, it says, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter, do not associate with them, in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. In this final section of the passage, we can see a better picture of the extent of the social shunning that's being talked about. People that will not work or are deliberately disobedient to the teachings of God through the apostles are to be cut off completely without are not to be cut off completely without hope of restoration, but are to be warned about their behavior and excluded from such communal activities as perhaps worship services or meals. And the goal of this shunning that's happening is restorative and redemptive. We know that from the last sentence, that they would eventually be restored having felt enough shame and concern for their reputation among the people that they decide to turn around and go back. In the culture that this was written in, it was, it was a shame-honor culture. So um, much like some communal cultures in Asia and other parts of the world, uh, not so much among United States citizens, who if they're shunned will probably just go to a different church. Um, that's kind of what happens. <laughs> that's why this is tricky, right? People, people in this culture, if they felt enough shame, that would motivate them for the name of their reputation, their family name, to correct their misbehavior. So that is what church discipline looked like in this situation, according to Paul. And if it weren't worded so very strongly, you know, we might overlook this and say, this doesn't really apply to us. But Paul strongly commands them to exercise this church discipline in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he actually commands them to carry out this discipline in the hopes of restoring a person to fellowship after they've repented of their ways. So in my opinion, we have to take this passage seriously as a biblical teaching. And we have to look at the reasons why this shunning is uh, being 
Um, th- those are really my words. It sounds like the scarlet letter. Why this, what other word is there for it? This exclusion on some level socially is being done. So here's the behaviors that earn this social shunning from the church in our passage today. Number one, being idle and disruptive. And this is where the stewardship principle comes in handy. The, the direct translation of the Greek here could mean wasting your, their efforts, appearing to be doing work but not actually doing work that's very productive, um, meddling in other people's work and affairs. It wasn't that these people weren't necessarily working. They were actually putting some time and effort into a lot of activity, but the wrong activity and with the wrong heart, for sure. So for Paul, this was kind of like pseudo-work. They're saying we're working, but they're not really working. They're not really making much of an effort, but appearing to make an effort. And they're mostly just disrupting other people who are actually working. Um, And what this boils down to is there's an irresponsible attitude towards working and providing for the community in which they lived. So these people were not stewarding their jobs, their work, and the, and the money or bread that they would earn from doing this well, and then they were actually eating the bread of people who are working hard. And so this wasn't just a sin. If you look at this kind of social shunning that's happening, this, the reason Paul is so stern about this is this is not just a sin that hurt them, although it wasn't good for their heart. This hurt the whole community. If you eat other people's bread... While, uh, while refusing to work and do your fair share of, of the work and earning of the bread, then you are taking bread out of the mouth of someone or someone's child who is working hard. And Paul says that's not acceptable. It's much like the passage in um, Corinthians where Paul says, if you eat, eat the body of Christ and drink the blood, you know, the communion elements of bread and wine, without taking into consideration the body of Christ— you eat and drink condemnation on yourself. In that passage, people who were wealthier were drinking um, the Lord's, the wine representing Christ's blood and eating the bread like gluttonously, which was a reflection of their culture they lived in, the, the Greek culture. And when the poor people got to the communion table, there wasn't any wine or bread left. So Paul says, consider the body when you go to the table of the Lord and look at who's not getting what they need and make sure that you don't eat and drink condemnation on yourself by getting drunk at the Lord's table for crying out loud and then eating all of the bread. You know, this is a very similar concept, but this is even more perhaps, uh, that's a very sacred symbol that we do, the communion table. But this is even more sinister. You know, a limited amount of food, a limited amount of wine or whatever sustenance and people that are meddling with other people, keeping them work, their work from going forward, not doing work themselves, but trying to appear to be doing work, and then taking the bread. They're eating the bread of idleness. They're, they're depriving other people of the bread that they need. And so it's an irresponsible attitude. And so Paul says, you're being undisciplined, you're being disruptive, you're being disorderly, you're being idle. What he is saying through this observation and then application of discipline is that the church is not to work only for our personal gain here in the church as individuals. but We are to have an element of our work where we are working to care for the needs of others and for the people that can legitimately not work. Like this guy that is being disciplined, they could work, but they're choosing not to. But for all the other Christians, we are to steward our jobs and our work in such a way 
and this is especially pertinent in this culture, that we can provide for the needs of others in the church. In other words, our work is not to be selfish only. It's not, it's not to be only for us and only for our family, but part of our work is meant to be set apart to help people that are legitimately suffering uh, in, and unable to work for, because of a disability, a legitimate disability, or because um, whatever the case may be. So it's good to take care of people with legitimate needs. But those of us who can work should keep in mind the other people. And of course, in this culture, you know, this church was, was unified and in being persecuted. They were pushed together. And it was especially important for them that the church meet the needs of the people, uh, perhaps. Uh, but in our church, I don't think that's any different. I think that it's about changing our mindset. When we think about stewardship, everything belongs to God. That changing our mindset about our budget and maybe setting apart part of our budget to, to be a fund to help people that need it at some point in the body. That we hear about a need and we have a fund where we can give something to somebody in the body who has a need. And I know that you guys have done this as a church. We've done this through benevolence, and you guys have done it individually. You've heard about a need, and you've had the money because you've budgeted that money to address that need. And I think that's the kind of stewardship that Paul and God are looking for, that people that don't work selfishly, far from the person who pretends to work but just disrupts everyone else that eats the bread, you know, the positive it, command is don't work selfishly for yourself alone, but work in such a way that you're going to have extra to share with people who have need. And I think that's a really powerful thing that we could do. But again, Paul says very strongly, if someone is gaming the system and taking advantage and pulling the bread out of someone else's mouth, you need to discipline that person. That's not loving to let that person keep doing that. That's not cool. That's not cool to like let your kid repeatedly beat up the, your other kid. You know, you got to do something. And you know, we don't like discipline or authority or this stuff, but this really stinks. What a crappy thing to do. And those people should have been ashamed of themselves, you know. <laughs> think about that. Just like in 1 Corinthians, you think about that, that image of them at the Lord's table, like getting drunk on the, on the wine and eating all the bread and the poor people being like, we don't have anything. Like, what a horrible picture that is. Actually, it's the exact opposite of the self-giving love of Christ, which is why I think that this is such a big deal to Paul. Because Jesus didn't die for his own sins. Jesus died for everyone else's sins and the sins of his enemies who turned to him. He, he died, Jesus basically died uh, for, in, a, in a very selfless way for everybody else. He had a, a great, he had like 100% of his, the budget of his blood went to paying other people's uh, bills. And Paul says, even in the way that you eat, even in the way that you work, that you work, think about doing it in a Christ-like way where everything belongs to God. You're just a caretaker and you make some, some adjustments to have money available for other people and that when people mistreat each other grossly, it's okay to, to, you know, do tell them to repent, but do not associate with them like everything's just fine. It's not fine. Now, in our day and age, what happens? People get in their cars and they go to a different church. So church discipline is really tough to know how to, how to do. I think it's a case-by-case thing you have to figure out, and the Word of God can guide that. Right now, I, don't, I can't think of a, a situation where we need to exercise a discipline like this, but let's just know that this is in the Bible. Let's just have, be aware that this is in the Bible, that these are like the guidelines. That's a serious thing in Jesus' name that, that it happens. It's not just like the Amish or the Scarlet Letter, but like it can be done well, and it can be done restoratively, and it can be done in humility and for, for restoration. And sometimes it's going to be appropriate to do it. And I hope that we, you know, my hope is I can go through my whole ministry without ever having to do it. That'd be awesome. But 
the Word of God has some stuff about church discipline, both here and in a couple other places, and we can make some inferences. Um, but really, I think that the heart of Christ really does break when people who have received his mercy and grace for their sins and are living in his salvation turn around and uh, don't offer a generous, generously to those around them. You know, it shows that the gospel hasn't really taken root in their life. And I think that we, we, we were saved for the sake of others in many ways. God saved us so that we could then pass along the grace to other people. And if you look at the parable of the unmerciful servant that Jesus tells uh, his audience, you know, basically there's someone with a huge debt they couldn't repay. And uh, the, the person who owed them the money says, give me everything that you owe me. They say, I can't do it. Have mercy on me. And he has mercy on them for an, an, an amazing amount of money he could never pay back. But then that person that got forgiven turns around and beats somebody over a couple days' wages. But the original master heard about that lack of mercy. And guess what? Debt's not paid anymore, you know, that person. The person who originally sought mercy from his master uh, gets thrown into the darkness and cast away because the effect of that mercy did not have the effect of that person becoming merciful. And that's what Jesus is looking for from us. So we are to work in the positive with the idea in mind that everything, including whatever remuneration we get for working, whatever money we get, as wages, fully belongs to God, and we are only stewarding what he's given us. And I think we should, we should steward that in an unselfish way and even prepare for needs others in the body might have that we don't even know about yet, ahead of time. Now, I'm thankful for our Benevolence Fund that we do that with. You can give it to the Benevolence Fund here. But also, personally, it's great to have something to be able to help a brother or sister in need. Um, it's amazing to think about something that's a drop in the bucket for one person and is like, a story that will be told for 20 years to someone else, you know? And uh, if you can put money aside, that's a great thing to do. That's my favorite way of budgeting, I think. Because there are legitimate needs in the body. There are legitimate needs that people have, and there are people that cannot work. There are. And we should not just dismiss everyone who has a need as being, oh, that's, you shouldn't have a need. No, no, people do have legitimate needs, and we need to meet them if we can as a church. But yeah, don't be a busybody. <laughs> don't eat other people's bread and seek to do as little as possible. I love it when it says of Christ in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured its pain and suffering, the cross. And his joy was to provide salvation and this generous gift of grace to everybody. For the joy set before him, he wasn't paying his own debt. All of his blood went to pay the debts of humanity and create fallen creation. And likewise, as we've received that mercy, we are to turn around and give that mercy away, whether that looks like money or stuff or time, whatever it looks like, to, to respond to the gift of God's grace by becoming like Jesus in our giving and our stewardship. So right now, I can't really think of a, a situation in which New Life would have to do church discipline. I hope we don't, but let's just know this is here and that we can look back to it if we need to. And we should always be encouraging one another you know, just in the smaller areas of growth as iron sharpens iron as we move forward. The final part of this passage is in uh, verse 16, 17, and 18. Paul says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. 
which is the distinguishing mark in all of my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This, this uh, expression in verse 16, the Lord of peace, it's a unique expression. Usually in the Bible it says the God of peace. But here, of course, he's saying that Jesus Christ is God and the peace of Christ, the Lord of peace. Um, we'll give you peace at all times in every way and be with you. And then Paul signs the letter because we know that some false teachings were being sent to this church from people other than Paul, so he wanted to sign it in his own hand so they could know this was the authoritative word of God. So after the strong encouragement that Paul's given to pray about everything, to act with generosity towards others in our stewardship, Paul reminds us once again in this passage of why we are to model our lives in this way. And it's because we are, as this says, mirroring the peace and grace of God, which we see demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross. The God, of, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ compels us. It's with us. It drives us. It drives our actions. So because of this, um, all of our responses have to be Christ-like, emptying ourselves to serve one another in love. So we're going to go before the Lord with another song and worship him in singing. I want you to join me in prayer as we do that. Jesus, I just pray for your church, and I thank you for your word. And I I pray that uh, we would be a people that are marked by prayer being our primary work, that we would leverage whatever testimony we have to pray in faith, about many things, and even to pray about things we've never seen before, believing in you, trusting in you and what you can do, God, for others, recognizing that all of our prayers are, they come before you because they're in Jesus' name and not our name. I pray that we would learn to pray in every circumstance, Father, to pray continually, breathing our prayers before and after everything we do, soaking everything in prayer, in our families, children, our friends, our relationships, our workplaces, yes, our church, uh, that we would become a people who are marked by humble dependence and prayer. And Lord, we say together, we believe that it takes your power to break chains, and we cannot do it ourselves. And we cannot be persuasive enough to reach anybody. Let your word go forward in power. And secondly, I pray that, Lord, we would take to heart this uh, harsh uh, church discipline passage and that we would understand how to exercise this if the need should ever arise, but that we would take seriously the, the inverse of this situation, that we would become people that are good stewards of what you've given us, and that we would live generously in the way that you've been generous to us, taking care of people that have legitimate needs, not being disruptive, not being busybodies or gossips or just people that weigh down the community, but being a blessing like Christ is to us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.